And who I are, I am Merck, and I am a grateful recovering uh, Al-Anon who's happy, joyous, and free. Hi, everybody. Does everybody get in a seat? I want y'all to be comfortable. Maybe I should make y'all all stand. I mean, misery loves company. <laughs> I'm a little punchy tonight. I've had a long, long day, so we're, we have no idea what we're going to say tonight or how it's going to be said, so just... Hang on, Wheeler. We're going to go for a ride, I think. Um, I've never been a retreat master. When she sent me this little, she said, would you come and talk and do your thing on the steps? I said, yeah. But then later I got a letter that said, you know, you get to be the retreat master. And um, I told my sponsor, and she's still laughing. <laughs> the butcher at our grocery store said to me yesterday, he said, where are you going this weekend? I said, well, you believe this? I'm going off to Oregon to be a retreat master. And John got down behind the meat counter. <laughs> this may be the first spiritual withdrawal retreat you have ever had. <laughs> may very well be. I am from Little Rock, or North Little Rock. Excuse me, I don't even know where I am from tonight. I got a flyer the other day that said that I was on a program and that I was from North Little Rock, Alaska. <laughs> Now, so that everybody will know, and you uh, there's not a big mystery as to the name Merck, but everybody seems to want to know, where did you get a name like Merck? My nephew came to live with us when my brother was killed, and he couldn't speak plainly. And in the South, we're big on double names. I don't know if y'all are aware of that, but we have Jim Bob, Billy Bo, you know, uh, Mary Pearl, everything like that, Shirley Ann, and that's like I told Pam, if her name had been Pamela Sue, she'd fit in fine. And my nephew couldn't say Mary Pearl. He could say Mer Pearl. And sometimes if he was in a hurry, he said Merp. And it's just that simple. I got the nickname when I was a little girl, and I've been carrying it ever since. And uh, I sort of like it now that I like to be an individual. You know, I said, I've got something no one else has. I've never met another Merp. <laughs> and uh, my husband one year for my birthday gave me a license plate that says The Merp. So I am The Merp. <laughs> And I want to congratulate God on doing a good job. I mean to tell you, this is beautiful country. Now, when I was here earlier this year, it was uh, snowing the night I talked. And uh, I got drowned. I was just wet, sopping wet by the time I got back to my hotel. I could not believe that y'all have a college that doesn't have a driveway anywhere near some of the facilities. <laughs> so after I walked two miles in the snow at midnight, you know, and got back to my room, but I didn't see too much of the country because it was all hazy and foggy and rainy. Typical weather, I understand, for y'all. And uh, this time, God did really good because I got to see the, all the mountains with the snow. And when we were coming in, it was so clear. The pilot was saying, there's Mount Hood on your left. And you look like you could just reach out and touch it. And I thought we were. And, uh, and he said, there's Mount Rainier and Mount St. Helens off in the distance. And you could actually see all these things. I don't know that they were really those, but he said they were, so who am I to question? Hopefully he had the map. Okay, I want to get started. I want to tell you tonight just a little bit about myself so you'll know how unqualified I am to go and be to, to conduct this deal for you. So you know that you're really here at the mercy of God, you know. I, I don't know what y'all have done to deserve this. <laughs> But uh, I'm going to share with you this weekend um, my experience on how I work the steps. But tonight I'm just going to tell you a little bit about myself, some background information. I'm the youngest of four children. I'm a change-of-life baby, and I'm an Army brat. 
I was spoiled by a man uh, who absolutely let me do anything I wanted to. And I thought he was the most loving, most kind, most wonderful father in the whole world. Wouldn't you if you could do anything you wanted to? But as a small child, you know, you learn things wrong. And I perceive this as being that he loved me so much. But conversely, if you didn't let me have my way, and if you didn't let me be spoiled, you didn't love me. And so that's how I felt about my mother, and I refer to her as the warden. Uh, she seemed to have had one purpose on life, and that was to make mine miserable. And uh, I never, I didn't get along with her. We fought like cats and dogs. But Daddy was there, and he would intercede for me, and he would make it all okay. But there was tragedy happened when I was 12 years old. My father died of a heart attack. And uh, my world, as I knew it, changed, changed drastically that night. There's no way to describe the terror and the horror, and in fact, I couldn't deal with it, so I went into denial. And it was a period of weeks before I actually accepted the fact that my daddy was dead and he wasn't coming home. I had in my idea this was a bad dream that I had had, because you see, my daddy died with my arms around him. And it was so hard for me to accept that I wasn't ever going to see the man that I loved again. And I got real mad. That's one of the stages of grief, they tell me now. The first is denial. I went through that, and then I went into anger. And I stayed in anger. <clears throat> I never went any further. And I was mad at God. Because God was in charge of life and death. I knew that. And so God had killed my daddy. And I was angry at my mother for being alive. And I would look at her, and I would think, why are you here? Why couldn't you have died and daddy stayed here? And I was very resentful. I was not a sweet child. Um, <clears throat> my drug of choice is adrenaline. I've been addicted to excitement all my life. And uh, so I did things for excitement. And I'll get attention one way or another. Sort of like Debbie, you know. <laughs> I, think she, I think she can relate to that. Um, and so I got negative attention from my mother. I, did, I knew exactly what to do every day of my life as I got up. I did exactly what she told me not to do. And uh, so naturally, it was sort of like I declared war on her, and she declared war back. And, and we didn't have a, a lot of fun during the next several years. Now, I know you're going to find it hard to believe, but when I was a small child, I had a weight problem. And when you're in school and you're different, if you're shorter than, taller than, skinnier than, fatter than, uh, the right color, the wrong color, whatever, you're different. And so I felt different. I also felt different because my parents were old. I felt different when my daddy died and my mother referred to me as a half-orphan. I love that term to this day. Um, you know, it's real good for self-pity. It's real good. Uh, my way to overcome these things was I felt real inferior. And to offset that, I became superior. I became an overachiever. I was the class brain, and I thought that if I could get enough recognition, then you wouldn't, it wouldn't matter to you that I was too heavy or that I was a half-orphan or I was this or that. And no matter how much I was accepted by the other people, I never accepted me, and I always questioned your acceptance. And I would say, you wouldn't really like me if you really knew who I was. So I had to be somebody I wasn't in order to get along. So I began to live like a little lizard. You put it on a rock and it turns that color. And so that's probably what I did with different groups of friends. And I didn't have a whole bunch of friends because, um, well, I like to think of it as I'm a natural-born leader. <laughs> when the truth is, I don't know how to follow. I ain't a leader. I don't go. Because, you see, it had to be my idea. Because somehow in my mind I got the idea, because I was an overachiever, that I was real smart. 
And being real smart like that, well, you don't let other people tell you what to do. If anybody does the telling, you're going to do it. And so that's what I did. And I had this group of sickies that I led. Well, they had to be sick, my God, or they wouldn't have let me lead them. Um, I can remember one time in particular, my best girlfriend was Shirley Ann. And uh, Shirley Ann and I were walking down the railroad track. Mother had said, never walk the railroad track. So we were walking the railroad track. And happened to look down in the ravine there alongside the railroad, and there was a man laying there. And he just seemed dead to the world. I mean, dead. And, and so I said, Shirley, go down and see if that man's dead. <laughs> and Shirley started down the ravine, and she stopped about halfway, and she said, I don't care if he's dead. <laughs> she said, if you want to know, you come down here. And I was really shocked, not by the man, but by Shirley's reaction. It was the first time, and we'd been friends since we were four years old, that she had ever refused to follow a command. You know, she had, the worm turned on me that day out there on the railroad track, and I couldn't understand that. Well, I had decided that I didn't want to go down there either, but I sure was curious about the man's status, and he was laying flat on his back. So I decided, well, we'd pick up a rock, and we'd take the rock, and we'd hit him with it, and if he didn't move, he was dead, and we'd call the police. It was just that way. Well, I don't know where I found, but I found me a rock. <laughs> You know, we do seem to be people of excesses, and so I found this rock, and I sailed it off and hit him right in the face. Well, he didn't move, so I said, well, if he wasn't, he is now, and so we ran on down to the house to call the police. Well, I ran in, and I said, Mama, there's a dead man along the railroad track, and she said, what were you doing along the railroad track? You know, she always missed the importance of the moment. And I said, Mama, call the police. She said, you've told a lot of stories, but let me tell you, this one takes the cake. And I said, but Mama, there really is a man on the railroad track. And she said, you shouldn't have been on the railroad track. And finally, I went over and picked up the phone and called the police. Because it was obvious that Mama was not going to make the call. And she kept saying, they're going to put you away when they get here. <laughs> well, we found the man, and true enough, he was dead. He was dead drunk. And he had evidently fallen off the train. And the only thing they could find wrong with him was his nose was broken. <laughs> So, you see, Grunts and I weren't going to get along right from the very beginning. Now, I knew what a drunk was. My mama had a whole family full of them. Um, I've often thought that perhaps my mother was an alcoholic who never drank because everyone else in her family became one when they drank. And my grandfather died in the state hospital from wet brain from alcoholism. My grandmother died from cirrhosis of the liver, alcoholism. I had an uncle that was shot in bed with another man's wife while he was under the influence of alcohol. I thought that that was exciting, alcoholism. Uh, I've got an aunt and uncle today who are still practicing in their 80s. Um, he shot her car and set fire to her house in the last six months. So they're still playing these games. But what it amounted to me was that what my observation was, was when someone drank and they got out of hand and they hurt one another and they'd have fights and they'd do all these crazy things, that's what an alcoholic was to me. But we never had any alcohol in our home, so I didn't know anything about it. And my mother would say, don't ever drink. You carry the bad seed from my side of the family. That's, that sounds heavy, don't it? I couldn't wait to get to a bar. <laughs> Just to see what it felt like. And it didn't do anything. Of course, back in those days, the weirdest thing and the most vicious thing you could do was have a beer. 
And I don't say, you know, everybody says you have to acquire a taste. Why in the hell would you drink something long enough to have to acquire a taste? I didn't have to acquire a taste for Coca-Cola, you know. But anyway, uh, that was the most vicious thing you did, or uh, smoke a cigarette. Now, that, oh, that was bad, 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 bad. You know, I'm just lucky I wasn't raised today. I guess I'd be a cocaine uh, shooting up whatever because I had to do anything that I was told not to do. And so God was very merciful and put me back in the dark ages. But anyway, I finished school. And uh, I was going to college, and like I say, my little girls, I'm leading them, and they begin to get married off on me. Now, it's really difficult to lead your gang when they start getting married because their husbands don't mind. So I figured what I needed was some credibility, and that meant if I got married and got me a husband who would back me up, then we'd get to do these things. And also I fell in heat about the same time. So it all sort of went together, you know. Now, I wanted to get away from home more than anything in the whole world because I hated being there with her, and I hated her, and she hated me, and we just couldn't stand each other, but we couldn't be separated. And that's the irony. You know, I couldn't stand being at home with my mother. I hated being there, but I was afraid I couldn't make it over there by myself. And this would begin a pattern of looking for someone else out there to fix me so I'd be okay over here. And so, sure enough, you know there's always an idiot somewhere. And one night he spilled a Coke on me at the bowling alley, and I knew right then it was true love. <laughs> we were literally stuck to one another. Uh, Coke syrup's very sticky. Anyway... Uh, we started dating, and we got married, and I told him, I said, I want you to take me away from home, far away from that old bat. I don't want to be around her. And he said, okay. Well, now, I did not ask to go to Stephenville, Newfoundland, but that's where we went. Now, for the benefit of you all who are not geography majors, it's a little teeny island off the east coast of Canada, right next to Greenland, Labrador, over there. You know, snow nine months of the year, and it's just butthole deep on a giraffe. I mean, it is bad. Now, I did not want to be there. It was boring there. Boring, boring. Now, I saw today when we were driving in, I saw these farms of Christmas trees. And I just loved it because, you know, in Arkansas now, we have to buy Christmas trees. We don't grow those little dumplings, you know. We have magnolias and sycamores and cottonwoods, which just lose all their leaves, you know, and there you are with stems for a Christmas tree. So... I was in the land of Christmas trees because in Newfoundland there weren't any trees that didn't have needles. They had spruce and um, evergreens, you know, just sort of like y'all do here. They had all them sorts of really neat Christmas kind looking trees. And I read all the time because, you know, I just love to read because I, I felt like if I was well read that I would understand I'd be a woman of the world. And uh, so I decided, well, I'd read where when you go at Christmas, you get a Christmas tree and the whole family goes out, and they cut it down, they bring it back, and make little popcorn chains, and that, blah. But anyway, it sounded good at the time, and everybody's going to have this wonderful little scene at Christmas. So I got the help of the two boys next to me, and they're tobogganing, and I decided we'd climb this mountain in front of our house. Uh, we had about 18 or 20 steps cut in the ice from our door going up the hill, and then there was a road at the top, and on the other side was this mountain with all these trees. And so I got my husband and these two boys, and off we go. Now, the plan was we'll cut down the Christmas tree, we'll tie it to the toboggan and bring it back down the hill. And that sounds pretty good, but I've never been able to leave anything alone. I have to keep modifying the plan and improving upon perfection as we go along. You know, it has to be perfect, you understand. 
And so we got up there and we cut down a tree. And the only problem was when a tree fell over, it didn't look as good as when it was standing up. Something happens to them when they fall over. So I'd have to cut another tree and another tree. And pretty soon I had enough trees for everybody in the apartment complex who had not asked me to go bring them a Christmas tree. But you know how helpful we are. So we tied all these trees on that toboggan, and we had a piece of rope left over, and this is when my mind began to go. And I said, you know, we could ride down on top of the trees. I bet that'd be exciting. And I said, and I'll tie me on the front with the rope that's left. So that's the scene, girls. I'm, we're coming down the hill, you know, and now I'm going to gain some information real fast. Because, see, I'm from Arkansas. I don't know the first thing about a toboggan. But I had a sled once, and that ought to count, you know. But coming down that hill, you gain lots of speed. And there's no brakes on a toboggan, and there's no steering mechanism. Just that little roll board in front of you, away you go. And we went over some smaller trees. And they got thrown off. But not me. See, I tied on. And we're coming on that road. There's cars going back and forth on that road, and I'm coming straight in. And I shot between two of the cars, went down the ice step, and through the bottom of my house. <laughs> now, I'm here to tell you it splintered me and the toboggan, and it knocked a hole like you wouldn't believe in the side of the house. And my landlady came running out. It was her son's toboggan, and she, she thought it was a sonic boom, an explosion, whatever. She got out there, and she looked at me, and she said, What are you after doing, you crazy Yankee bitch? And I looked at her, and I said, Don't you call me no damn Yankee. So that's a typical day in my life. Alcohol hadn't even struck. I was in this land when I turned 21 years of age, and I decided my big moment would be I would go out to the 21 bar there, and I would go in and be sophisticated and have me a drink. I mean, I'm 21. I don't know why, but, you know, I never thought about doing anything else when I was 21, but on my 21st birthday, that seemed the thing to do. So I went into the 21 bar, and I crawled up on that bar stool, woman of the world, genuine sophisticated, and I said to the bartender, he looked at me, and he says, what do you have? What have you got? <laughs> that may have been a giveaway. And he began to tell me, and finally I remembered in the movies, everybody always had a martini. So I said, give me a martini. Now, how anyone ever makes the program on martinis, I don't know. That had to be the worst drink I have ever laid a lip to. I took about two little swigs of that, turned inside out. The bartender was standing there watching. And he said, perhaps... A vodka Collins would be better. And I thought kerosene would be better, boy. You just, I mean, this is bad stuff. And so I started social drinking, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the music. I enjoyed the little tinkling of the glasses. I enjoyed everything. I did not enjoy seeing people get sick. I didn't enjoy getting sick. I didn't like the feeling when I would drink too much and I would feel like that I was not going to be able to conduct myself in the manner I wanted to. I can remember the horror of seeing a woman drunk. And I said, God, I never want to be like that. I don't want to stagger. I don't want to throw up on myself. That, to me, it just turned my stomach, and I said, I never want to be like that. And yet I found myself sometimes drunk and throwing up on myself and couldn't walk. And I can remember the horror of how I felt as a woman to be like that. But, as it were to be, I was not to have the disease of alcoholism. 
I was very lucky, or maybe I just didn't drink enough, although I drank a lot, because alcohol on overseas uh, was very, very cheap. Uh, a gallon of VO was less than $5. It was a really, I, I can look back on it today, and a lot of our friends must have had drinking problems, because I know today about alcoholism, and I didn't back then. Anyway, I got bored, real bored, and I found it necessary to do some things that would be exciting, and those things cost me my marriage. And so when I came back to the States, you notice how quickly we went over that? <laughs> Did you like the way that went? So when we came back home, my husband and I decided we'd try to make another go of it, which lasted a few weeks, and I got bored again, and I said this wasn't going to get it. But the funny part to me was how I had to get back to North Little Rock. Now, this is a place I couldn't get away from quick enough, but now I've been away for about five years, and I want to go back. So my husband and I separated. You see, I did not want a divorce at that time because I was not willing to be self-supporting through my own voluntary contribution. I wanted my husband who was in the military, I wanted that nice little military allotment check each month. I wanted to do my thing, whatever that was, and have a good time. I felt like for the first time in my life I was going to be free. I didn't have to answer to mother. I didn't have to answer to a husband. I could do anything I wanted to do. I just never bothered to get a divorce. And after a while of feeling so free, you begin to think you're free. You know, it's funny how your mind plays little tricks with you, and you hear what you want to hear, and you see what you want to see, and you remember what you want to remember, and I chose not to remember I was married. And uh, I began to have a lot of fun. I lost over 100 pounds of weight, got me some hot pants and some stretch boots, and I went out to have some fun. Fun! <laughs> you know, real fun, you know. Well, <laughs> the world fights back. Uh... But I also decided to join the little, uh, uh, we had a baseball, softball team, neighborhood. And it was uh, men and women, both, boys and girls. I mean, we just had a lot of fun, just a little neighborhood deal. And after the game, we'd all go back over to somebody's house, and we'd have a few drinks and talk about the game, maybe eat a sandwich or two, and just, you know, wind down and talk about our strategy for the next game. It sounded real simple. But there was a problem, see, when they all came to my house. And the problem started back with the boy across the street from me. Now, the boy across the street from me drank, and when he drank, he'd come home and he beat up his wife. Well, I knew he was one of them, because that's what my mother's family did. So I knew he had to be an alcoholic, and uh, so it really bothered me. I can't stand to see women who are abused by men. I don't see anything wrong with women abusing men. I guess I'm a female showing this piglet. But anyway, this boy would come home, and he'd beat up his wife, and she was pregnant. And the night she went into labor, he came in and worked her over, and her, her nose was bleeding, and her eye was turning blue. And I felt real sorry for her, because she came over to the house, and she said, would you take me to the hospital? And I said, sure. And we went back over to her house to pack her stuff, and he was laying on the bed, passed out with that little smirk like they get, you know, like, hmm. And I looked at him, and I thought, you know... Somebody ought to whip him. And it was one of my first spiritual awakenings. I'm somebody. So I tied him up in a bed sheet. I took a slat out of his bed, and I beat the fool out of him. There was an alcoholic lived on the other side of me. I seemed to be a carrier. 
And this guy had gone to the doctor, and the doctor had said, well, said, Freeman, you're going to die if you don't quit drinking. Well, he quit drinking. He died anyway. And he died miserable because he never found a program of recovery. But I can tell you, he was stark raving sober to left to live next door to. I'm telling you. Now, my lifestyle is a little different than a lot of people. I'm a night person, and I'm a night person by choice and also by internal clock. Well... I would uh, go to bed around 7 or 8 in the morning, and Freeman had this garden, and he would go out and till his garden at 7 and 8 in the morning. That really irritated my nervous system. So I went out and explained to him, and he told me to shut my mouth and get my fat ass back in the house. Well, he shouldn't have done that. Because, you see, I believe in slow premeditated revenge. So I got a frog gig and headlight, and I mowed my grass at 11.30 at night. But the sheriff came to see me. And, you know, by and large, law enforcement individuals are narrow-minded. So I went into plan B. You know, a good Al-Anon always has a contingency plan. If the one you've got doesn't work, you've always got this one in the back you're going to rush right in with because it will work. Because you don't ever give up. By God, if you look at it long enough, you will find something that works. So Freeman had six beagles. Now, if you've ever been around one beagle, you know them the barkingest little doggies that ever were. Well, he had six, so I'd wait till the wee hours of the morning. I'd take a broom handle, run up and down his dog yard fence. And then I'd run on back of my porch. Well, those dogs would scream and they'd holler and he'd come out in his drawers and hose them down and he'd cuss them out. And then he'd go back to bed and I'd wait about an hour and we'd do it one more time. And when that wasn't, the sheriff came to see me. <laughs> now, the reason I told you this, you see, it was really important that night they all came back over to my house after the ball game. Because, you see, there was a boy at my house that night that was drinking. And he got drunk, but he was only 18. And 18 was not legal age in Arkansas. And I knew if that boy got picked up going home by that sheriff, he'd have me to contribute to the delinquency of a minor. Because, see, he was already on my case. Me just trying to have a little fun, a little excitement, you know, not trying to harm anything. And so I decided that what I'd do is I'd drive the boy home. You know, I called it being noble. We know today it's called covering yourself, you know. But anyway, it was around Mother's Day, and he had a china tea set. And I want you to picture this. It's the wee hours of the morning. I'm going into a strange house I've never been in before in my life. I am accompanied by a drunken 18-year-old kid, and I'm carrying a china tea set. Your normal everyday situation. And he flips the light on in his room, and there's a man laying on the bed with nothing but his underwear on. And he looks up and he said, well, hot damn, little brother, you brought us a broad home. <laughs> and I said, not tonight, fella. <laughs> well, that's who I'm married to today. You know, I didn't see anything at all bizarre about that. Because bizarre had become every day at my house. It wasn't a thing, and you'd be surprised. Now, I ran around with people who drank and who smoked dope and who did lots of drugs. And the reason I ran around with these individuals was I had to find somebody that I could look down on and say, at least I'm not that bad, because I knew I was compromising my beliefs, my morals, my values, that I had been trying to live by all my life. And in order to do that, I had to find somebody that was doing something that I wouldn't do yet. 
I used to say, well, at least I'm going to get married and I am going to be a faithful wife. And I blew that one. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll never commit adultery with a married man. Now, I don't know what difference that makes once you've been married and done it. But, you know, you've got to have your standards. And so then... <laughs> But I did, and I said, well, at least I'll, I'll never uh, have an affair with a, one of my girlfriend's husbands, but I did. And so my latest is, um, I've never had an affair with a kangaroo, but I haven't been to Australia either. You know, I believe in setting a goal you can live with. Uh, My God, I bet she's been with a bad kangaroo. <laughs> well, J.D. and I, J.D. and I started dating, and we went together for a little over a year, and then he asked me to marry him, but I had a problem. <laughs> I was still married. <laughs> I'd forgotten about it, and... And I had to mention, you know, you have such an honest, forthright relationship with someone, and then you've got to mention a slight little detail, you know. And he said, uh, you sure didn't act married. I said, well, I didn't feel married. Now, that ought to told him something about me. You know, that we can live in our own little fantasy world. We can see what we want to see and hear what we want to hear. But anyway, I went ahead and I got the divorce, and J.D. and I got married. Now, I did not know he was an alcoholic. I knew he didn't know how to drink. That was obvious. Because now when we go out together, I mean, he seemed to change when he drank, and I didn't. You know, I'd go out and drink, have a good time, let's party, let's dance. And instead, J.D. go out, and he, I liked the guy who had two drinks. I really did. Because before those two drinks, he was shy and quiet. But after two drinks, he got, ah! you know, just like I was, wired, you know. He liked that, and I liked that, but I didn't have him very long. It's like going out with a whole bunch of men at one time. There's the one you start out with, and then all of a sudden he became this little happy one, you know. And I had him for a while, and a few drinks more, then I got a little sad one, you know. And he came running in. And a few drinks more, and I got this, and I had a mouth like a shitty trunk lid. Boy, I mean. And then I got this other one that just sat there and saw up and looked stupid, you know. And all in the same night, you know. But I knew that once we got married, see, he wouldn't have to do that. And he and he told me later, he said, you stole me a bad bill of goods. And I said, how's that? He said, you never bitched about my drinking? He said, you were this wonderful thing that was hot to go and wanted to do all these things. You were a mad, passionate person, and you got married, and something happened. He said, all that changed. And I said, isn't that funny? I never thought about it at the time, but that's exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened because it was like I was tired of doing all these things and I was tired of going out to these bars because the bars that he wanted to go to seemed to be getting worse and worse and I got tired of watching the banditos and uh, what have you. I kept get tired of watching uh, people get in fights and having to walk through blood to get out of some of these places. I got tired of that. It was exciting for a while but then I got bored with it, you know. And so I told him, I said, why don't you drink at home? Now that entered a new world. That was a new world, you know. I never realized how much he was drinking until we started bringing it in the house. So I went down to the liquor store, and I completely stocked the bar from one end to the other. And he lived behind the bar. I couldn't believe anybody would just stay behind the bar. He had a fruit jar that he would use, and then he would stay behind the bar. And uh, I, I just, I'd never seen anything like that, and I didn't want that. And then he came crawling in one night to my room, and he said, 
the bar is empty. And he said, fill it up. And I said, go to hell. I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I said, I don't like this. I don't like our life. And uh, he said, well, what are we going to do about it? And I said, I don't know, but I know I can't live like this. But I was going to live like that, and I was going to play that game for a long time. J.D. then began to leave to drink. And he would go, um, I don't know, he would say he was going out for a cup of coffee and be gone three days. <laughs> now, that gives you something to think about, you know. And I would call all the jails and the hospitals and everyone that we knew and our families, and I couldn't find him. And, uh, boy, that would drive me crazy. And then he would walk in and act like he'd been gone ten minutes. And 30 minutes later, he had me convinced he'd been gone 10 minutes. And that would worry me. You know, I'd say, how can he do that? He calls it fast talking for slow thinking. <laughs> but things begin to change now. Our relationship began to change. And I no longer felt like his wife anymore. I began to feel like his mother. Because the more things that I began to do for him to try to keep, you know, if I could keep him happy, then maybe he wouldn't have to drink. If I could do this, then he wouldn't have to do that. Uh, it didn't work. The bottom line was none of that worked. And we went crazy in the process. We played hide and seek. He'd hide and I'd seek him. Uh, he would go and he would hide at these bars. And I would go into the bar when I would find our car and I'd look around. And when he drank, he had another character defect that came up. It was called womanizing. And I would look around the room and there he'd be with her sitting over there at that table. And boy, that would turn me inside out. And I'd run across that place and I'd turn that table upside down, slap her slap, throw a drink in his face, and the bouncer would throw me out. <laughs> and I was just there to save my home. <laughs> and every once in a while... And every once in a while I'd get feisty and I'd have to fight the bouncer back and then I could go to jail. And then I'd go to jail and he was still in the bar with her. And so that didn't seem quite right to me, so I started staying home then and waiting for him. Now, there's something to be said about waiting. You can build up to quite a pitch waiting. You know, I felt like there should be a ditch in front of the window because you listen for the sound of every car that goes by your street. And then finally you hear yours, and then he would come and he would open the door, and my mouth was attached to the door. <laughs> and when it would open, I would open my mouth, and he would look at me, and I'd say, Well, have you been drinking? And he'd say, no. Now, he's hanging on to a door facing, right? Or only two. I am firmly convinced that if I were to ask anybody in this room how many drinks you've had and you said six, I'd say Al-Anon. Because an alcoholic will never admit to more than two. And so I'd look at him and I'd say, you're a liar. And he'd say, so what? And I'd say, so this. And I had to put him out of my misery. So violence entered our home, and he began to suffer accidents. Uh, his, his daddy damn near got him killed because he would go to his daddy's, and his daddy would give him these pep talks about how he had let the woman get the pants on, and he needed to go home and assert himself and take the pants off, and he would sustain injuries from this type of conversation. Now, I'm not proud of that because I can tell you, being a, a person who's physically abusive, you lose all respect for the person that you allow that allows you to abuse them, and you hate yourself, too, for doing it. Because that in itself is another sickness, too, that need to have to punish someone to that degree. Um, finally, it got to a point where um, we just I, I just knew I couldn't live like that anymore. 
I was beginning to hate him with such a, oh, it was terrible. And I couldn't, I had a real good job at this point, and uh, I was an executive in an insurance company, and it was beginning to become a real problem for me trying to live two lives, the life down at work and then the life at home. I was in a lot of professional organizations, and I began one by one to drop out of because I could not afford not to get home so I could watch him and make sure that he didn't humiliate me, embarrass me, or get his name in the papers. And so it became just a nightmare. It became a total nightmare to me. It never occurred to me that I could have been contributing to the problem. You see, I would give him money to drink on. Now, I didn't know I was giving him money to drink on. He had to, in fact, we had a, I gave him a dime a day, and that was for emergency phone call. Uh, I took him to work and brought him home from work because he had lost his driver's privilege. Um, and yet I would go to get him and he was drunk on a dime. That amazes me. I'm firmly convinced that I could have tied him up in chains, a straitjacket, locked him in a closet, come back 30 minutes, and that asshole made been drunk. <laughs> so there didn't seem to be a way to keep him away from it. And I would lay awake nights trying to figure out, you know, head him off at the pass. And we had Y sessions. And he said he hated Y sessions because I would say, why did you do it this time? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And if you tell me why, well, then see, I could know how you think and then I could head you off and stop you from doing it that way again. And he'd just do it different each time. It was just a big, sick, sick rigmarole we went through for a lot of years. And then I issued the famous ultimatum, and I told him that he was going to have to get out. And that scared him because he was very, uh, he was working one or two days a week at this point. Um, I was totally taking care of him. And you know, it's real funny, I, I sponsor girls today that'll say, well, how can I make it without him? And I say, God, you'll make it so much better, you just don't know, because you won't be doing all these things. You know, the financial aspect we're so scared about. But yet I was clothing him, feeding him, providing a roof over his head. It would have been much cheaper for one than two. But I couldn't see that at the time, because, see, I needed that other person to make me okay, to validate my craziness. So anyway... Uh, I told him, I said, you've got to do something. And he said, well, he wanted to go to the doctor. And I said, that's it. You're <laughs> So I took my little boy to the doctor by the hand, and he told the doctor he might have a slight drinking problem. And I almost choked. And the doctor told him, well, maybe he should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And J.D. said, but I'm not an alcoholic. And I said, that's right, he's not. Because he did not behave like all my mother's family. And so, therefore, I was in total denial as to what the situation I knew he was a drunk, but I didn't know he was an alcoholic. And he said, well, what he wanted from the doctor was a prescription for antabuse because he had, a bunch of his friends were on it. He had such good friends. And so those people that, you know, if he'd just get away from them, that I knew he'd be okay type people. Um, anyway, the doctor gave him prescription for antabuse but told him that it would not in any way relieve him of the need to take a drink. And so we went home. But you see, I heard what I wanted to hear, and I heard, there's a pill. He can't drink. So every morning now, by this time, I've got high blood pressure, an epileptic dog, and J.D.'s on the pill. <laughs> now, in a hurry in the mornings, I can't guarantee you who got what, but everybody got a pill. <laughs> now, all these years, I have said, if he'll quit drinking, I'll be okay. Well, guess what, girls? He wasn't drinking. I wasn't okay. And it's funny about blaming. When you're blaming somebody for the reason that you are, there's no hope. As long as you find it necessary to blame, it was my mother's fault, it was my brother's fault, it was my wife's fault, my husband's fault, there's no hope for you because you're powerless over other people. But if you and what you're doing is the cause of how you are, there's hope because you can change that.
and I didn't know that. And so I continued to blame him. You see, I had blamed him before. It was still his fault. I could not quite understand why it was his fault, but I knew it was. And so what I decided was, you know, the logical thing would be to divorce him, but I'd already had one divorce. And God knows you don't want to be accused of being the kind of woman that just can't keep a husband. And, you know, you pick rotten men. You know, if you get one bad one, that's okay. But to get more than one, that means something's wrong with your picker. I did not want a bad picker. So I began to think of an honorable way to get out of it. And the best way I could think of was to become a widow. You see, if he would die, it would be a good way to get out of it, and I could be the poor little widow lady, and it would be wonderful, wonderful. But, you know, alcoholics die awfully slow. (laughs) And I begin to think of things that I'd like to do to him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I think on something long enough, I'm liable to act upon it, and I begin to think my favorite was taking a nice stick, stabbing him in the neck, and watching him drip. I loved it. I had what most people would consider nightmares. I loved them. I loved these dreams in which I killed him and I could see his little body and it was all mutilated and I was standing over him and he's looking up and I was saying, yes, it was me, dear. I didn't realize that I had flipped over the edge and I was getting into mental illness. I did not realize how sick I was becoming and that I was becoming homicidal. It never occurred to me that I was becoming homicidal. You see, always in my mind, it was justifiable homicide. If you were having to live like I was having to live, and if you were on my jury, there's no way, no way you would ever find me guilty. And I believe that. And then I read in the paper where a woman had, and they did, they put her away, I mean, and I said, that is so tacky. It's tacky. And it occurred to me one night, if a drunk were to pass out and drown in the bathtub, who would know? Now, you see, intuitively, I knew he was going to drink again because he always did. It's one of those things. And I began to think on that, and I kept saying, yeah, yeah. And a year to the very week that J.D. went on an abuse, J.D. got drunk. And when he came home, it wasn't like it was before. He came in the door, and I just hit him. And when he fell, he hit the coffee table and knocked him out. And I drug him across our living room, down the hall, into the bathroom. I ran the bathtub full of warm water, and I took his clothes off, and I put him in, and I held him under until the bubbles quit coming, because I hated him, and I wanted him dead. And then a voice came on the inside of me, and it says, look what you're doing. You can't do this. And I picked him up by the hair of the head, and I said, the hell I can't, and I put him back down again. Now, I don't know about you, but when you are talking to voices, and you're responding and what have you, there's something bad wrong with you, friends. And the voice came back. And I believe that today is the voice of my higher power because he said, look, you're committing murder. You're taking the life of someone you once loved. And it like to have scared me to death. I was like, it talks about in the big book, a moment of clarity in which I saw myself as an animal. I had become an animal to fight a disease and I didn't realize it was a disease. And I snatched him out of that tub. Well, when I was in Newfoundland, I worked for the American Red Cross and I'm a senior lifesaver. And it is only by the grace of God that I was able to resuscitate that man. And I took him in the bedroom, and I shut the door, and I heard, and I I went away, and for three days, I did not go back into that room, and I heard him scream for help. I heard him beg, but you see, I still wanted to kill him, and I was afraid of what I would do if I went in there. Well, J.D. had drank too much in too short a period of time, and he had alcoholic poisoning, and he liked to hemorrhage to death in that room. So it's only by the grace of God that he's alive. Only by the grace of God. 
And so it's this point where J.D. decided that perhaps he was an alcoholic. And so I took him to his first AA meeting because he couldn't drive, and he was shaking so hard he was in really bad physical shape. And I went in there, and you know they were really nice to me because they thought I was the drunk and he was the Al-Anon. I must have looked good, too. I didn't like that meeting. They were talking about honesty. I laughed. I said, what could a group of drunks know about honesty? Because he had lied to me so much. So I left there, and I wasn't too thrilled with it. But J.D. liked it, and he kept going. And he got himself a sponsor. And this guy looked worse than Grandpa did when we buried him. (laughs) I was not real thrilled, you know. And then things begin to happen for J.D., and there's nothing worse than somebody getting better in the house, and it's not you. And J.D. began to get better, and he would come home, and I would present a problem, and he'd say, but easy does it. <laughs> he'd say, Mary Pearl, you got to learn to live and let live. You know, I told him those six platitudes. I don't want to hear any of that bull. And he said, well, you're just going to have to let go and let God. And I said, oh, he made me sick. He literally made me sick. And then, lo and behold, he lost his job. Now, he had gone to work two or three days a week, Max, drunk, and held a job for ten years, and then get sober and get fired. But you see, he had done a sneaky thing. He had prayed and asked God to help him get sober, so God removed him from an environment that was okay for him to drink in took him away from his drinking buddy. But it really scared me because for the first time I didn't know what in the heck I was going to do. It was all on me now. Before I thought it was on me, but now it was really all on me. So I went to Al-Anon and I had two questions. How do you keep an alcoholic sober? And how do you manage when there's nothing left to manage? And I'm going to tell you what happened after that this weekend as we share how I got into the steps and how my life began to change. Thank you. This is the end of session one, the beginning of session two. Thank you. Ta-da! Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to attempt today to share with you how I work the 12 steps. Now, um, the 12 steps to me are the 12 steps. It doesn't make any difference what 12-step program you're in. They're all the same 12 steps. Now, I'm not here to teach you how to work them. I want to start off by saying I'm not a teacher, God forbid. Uh, And I'm not uh, an authority. This is just how I do them. Now, if you want to take anything that I say and use it, that's fine. And if you don't, you don't have to. That's why I say I'm just going to share my experience with you. And I am Murph, and I am a grateful member of Al-Anon, and I am happy, joyous, and free, and I'm a member in good standing in my group. Now, the reason I say I'm a member of good standing, that means something where I come from. I don't know if you all do that here or not, but it means that uh, I'm a true Al-Anon. Now, a true Al-Anon is not someone who qualifies for Al-Anon. Anybody in this world pretty near knows somebody who's an alcoholic, and that doesn't make you an Al-Anon. 
What makes you an Al-Anon is to attend the Al-Anon meetings on a regular basis. To work the 12 steps for the program of alcoholics in your life as a way of recovery and to help other Al-Anons. Now, that's what an Al-Anon is. And, of course, the things that I'm going to say today are my opinion, you know, and, and it may not uh, suit right with you, but that's tough because that's how I have to do it. You know, we learn this program, we have to have the courage of our convictions, and so uh, you'll probably think before it's all over, I'm an opinionated bitch, but that's okay, too. <clears throat> you know, it's not important to me so much what other people think about me anymore. What's important is what God and I know. And what y'all think really doesn't have that much to do with it one way or another. Um... <laughs> I want to tell you first how I used to live, and that will give you a little idea of why I needed the 12 steps. About six or eight years ago, I forget which, I sat down one day, and uh, with tongue-in-cheek, I wrote the 12 steps of pre-Alanon. Now, <clears throat> you may relate to some of these. We admitted we were powerless over nothing, that we could manage our own lives perfectly and those of anyone else who would allow us came to believe there was no power greater than ourselves and the rest of the world was insane. Made a decision to have our loved ones and friends turn their wills and lives over to our care, even though they couldn't understand us at all. Made a searching and fearless moral and immoral inventory of everyone we knew. Admitted to the world at large the exact nature of everyone else's wrong. We're entirely ready to make others straighten up and do right. <laughs> Demanded others to shape up or ship out. Made a list of all persons who had harmed us and became willing to go to any lengths to get even with them all. <laughs> Got direct revenge on such people wherever possible. Except when to do so would cost us our own lives, or at the very least, a jail sentence. <laughs> Continued to take the inventory of others, and when they were wrong, promptly and repeatedly told them about it. <laughs> Stopped through bitching and nagging to improve our relations with others, as we couldn't understand them at all, asking only that they knuckle under and do things our way. Having had a complete physical, emotional, and spiritual breakdown as a result of these steps, <laughs> we tried to blame it on others and get sympathy and pity in all our affairs. <laughs> I think a few of you must have related to some of those. And isn't it funny how we live like that, not knowing we were living like that? And then when we put it down today, we can look at it and say, Oh, my God, I did live like that. Or you might still be living like that, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. That's right. You put that on a bumper sticker. That's good. That's good. <laughs> well, it's not for the foreign jobs. <laughs> okay. I want to tell you that I qualify for this program, as if you can't tell. Um, I qualify by the fact that, like I say, my, my, mother's, my mother's father, my grandfather, my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles uh, were alcoholic. I married an alcoholic. I have an alcoholic doctor, veterinarian, dentist, um, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, you know. 
it just seemed like I say that in my life I was either attracted to or I was carrying the disease, one of the two. I'd heard of typhoid Mary, I may be alcoholic Murph, you know, I just, I don't know. But I do know that these people suffer from the disease of alcoholism, and it is a killer disease. I saw it with my grandfather. Uh, he died in the state mental institution, and uh, he had gotten to the point of being a vegetable. And I didn't know that could happen to someone. And uh, they, back in those days, like I say, I don't think they called him drunk, and you won't see the word alcoholism on too many death certificates. But you'll see a lot of related things that people will have. You know, I can remember a friend of ours, a neighbor, that her husband got uh, killed in an accident in which he was driving and he was drunk. And she said, God, I wish you could have died of cancer. You know, I can remember that when I was a kid. And, and I thought, why? You know, because cancer was socially acceptable. Alcoholism wasn't. It's only in the last few years with the insurance companies and everybody that it's really a social status symbol now. And, you know, people are just dying to get into all these treatment centers and programs and things. So it's, you know, it's really not as bad to be an alcoholic or whatever as it once was. I think the drug addicts are taking the rap now. Uh, <laughs> but an addiction is an addiction, and I'm addicted to an alcoholic. I get addicted to people. I get addicted to places. I get addicted to things. You know, uh, I didn't know what an addiction was. I didn't know what a compulsion was. But I'm a very compulsive and impulsive person. You know, uh, to me, uh, a compulsion is a thought that will supersede all other thoughts. And somehow, don't you ever get stuff on your mind, you just can't get it off, no matter what you're doing, you keep going back to it and going back to it. Well, you've got an obsession. You've got an obsession when you start doing that. And I didn't know that. You know, I'd be sitting in my office at work, and all I could think about was, I wonder where he's at. I wonder what he's doing or what, or what they're doing. I wonder, you know, where he's at. What's he doing it with? You know, I mean, all these things, you know, it just used to sit there and I'd be trying to work and get my work done. And then I'd say, oh, yeah, i got to do this. And I'd go back to this for a few minutes. And then the moment, I, the moment I would get my mind off of this, it would automatically go back to that other. And I was obsessed, and I had no idea that I was obsessed. Because, see, I didn't, no one ever told me I was powerless. In fact, I had people tell me just the reverse. Reverse. The reverse. That's a good word. That's reverse backwards. <laughs> You can do anything you want to do if you set your mind to it. Well, now that may explain why my mind's the way it is. I set my mind to a lot of things, you know, and I couldn't do it. And, it. and that also tells you that if you can't do it once you set your mind to it, there's something wrong with you. Because why can't you do this? I can remember people saying to me, can't you do something about him? And I would look and I'd think, well, I ought to be able to do it. Because if everybody's telling me this, then I must be able, I should have to do, be able to do this. So why can't I do it? And I don't know. It just seemed like no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do it. And uh, that would frustrate me. Now, I don't know about you, but frustration will drive me crazy. Absolutely dingbat. And I will do weird things when I'm frustrated. And if I'm frustrated long enough, that brings out that violence because I'm going to force whatever it is to happen. I'm going to make that change happen. God, God, I'm going to do it. You know, in our literature, it talks about the determined Al-Anon. Okay? Well, I want you to know, I'm a determined Al-Anon. Now, I'm still a determined Al-Anon, even after all these years in the program. And, and you do it on things, and you don't even realize you're doing it till you're into it. Because it is a natural thing. You know, any time you come into the program, I don't care where you come from, we're going to ask you to live abnormal for you. Because normal for you is cockamamie. Okay? 
If you drink your, you know, if you're an alcoholic, normalcy used to drink. If you're an Al-Anon, normalcy used to go crazy. You know, it doesn't make any difference what your deal is. But we're going to ask you to have to live abnormal for you. And, it, and it's hard. I went out to uh, Los Angeles back in January, and I was visiting with a friend of mine who happens to be Chinese. And I love Chinese food. And I have been making Chinese food for years, but this girl was showing me how she made her egg rolls. It's just like anybody's fried chicken. You know, there's a hundred different ways to do it. And so I came back home, and I had uh, a terrible, terrible sinus infection. And I had gotten a couple of pills. I do not, I am not one that takes medication well, and I have high blood pressure, so I have to be very careful what kind of medication I take. And so I had mentioned this to one of our physicians who's in our group, and he gave me a couple of pills, and he said, now this will help your sinus. And I said, all right, well, I went home and I decided I was going to make those egg rolls. Now, you don't feel good and you're going to experiment on something different. You know, the idea doesn't make sense to start with. But it did to me at the time. So it seems like a good thing at the time. So I went out and I bought this beautiful pork loin and I came in because now in California she can buy this stuff already prepared. I don't have a Chinese grocery store in Little Rock. We, now, we've got a bunch of people from Thailand and Vietnam that came, but we still don't have a Chinese store where you can go down there. You can go buy some canned goods, perhaps, but we don't have a place where you can go and buy the already prepared meats and things. And they have a thing called sliced cooked pork that goes in these egg rolls. So I had to create my own. So I got all of the stuff together, and I put it in the oven and took my pill and sat down in the chair to wait on it to cook. Well, I should have never taken that pill because I went instantly to sleep. And about five hours later... The phone rang, and I was talking to this friend of mine, and he made a reference to something being black as the ace of spades, and I said, <gasps> and it dawned on me there might be something black in my oven, and I said, Robert, hold on a minute, and I slung the phone down, and I ran in there, and I had pork briquettes. <laughs> I mean, they were glossy black, you know, because I had made it in this strip, and these were just little black strips, and I thought, oh, my God, you know, and they don't give pork loin away. But I'm going to fix it. Now, here's... Now, I found that right in the smack dab center of those was a little line of pork about this big that wasn't charcoal black. It was sort of rusty brown. And I cut it out. Well, it was sort of stringy, and it was awfully dry. And I thought, well, now, that's not going to digest. So what I'll, I'll put it in the food processor. Now I have... Four cups of pork sawdust. <laughs> Not the little lettuce thing like that hurt, you know. I go on and I take all these ingredients. Now, you don't put this stuff together for nothing, girls. And I have all this, I have this, and I'm making 24 of these little dudes, you know. And so I've got all my ingredients over here cooking, and I've got my little oyster sauce, and I'm going crazy. And then I have the, the sawdust. And it went bloop, bloop. And it looked like little sawdust dumplings. It was terrible looking. But I'm going to do it. And so I take out my egg roll wrappers. And then, you know, here's where my mind really began to go. And it said, you know, you noticed when Ruby was doing her, she was doing it wrong. <laughs> 5,000 years of Chinese, and they're doing it wrong. Isn't it funny how intuitively I knew that? Because I noticed when she sealed them with the little eggs that she put the little flaps up on the top. 
And anybody knows if you want that sucker to seal, you need to turn it over. So I did. Now I have 24 egg rolls stuck to a cookie sheet. They welded to that damn thing. And it was Teflon. <laughs> Obviously, the Chinese know what they're doing. And I cooked them. And I'm here to tell you, they were the worst egg rolls I have ever had in my life. And my husband looked at me, and as I was repeating to him my day's events, you know, about how it all went, and he looked at me and he said, did you really think that you were going to make them perfect the first time? And I said, yes. <laughs> Do you see the insane? And I sat there and I laughed till I cried, and I said, J.D., the sickness is upon me again. <laughs> See, I was tireless over egg rolls that day, and I didn't, I didn't know it. And you see, because I didn't know it, I kept on and on and on and on. And ended up, you know, it was a disaster. I had to throw the mess. That wasn't fit for human habitation. The disease you'd get from your, your non-scalded dishes would be nothing compared to the terrible taste in the, what you'd got to know. But that gives you a sense to show you that even today, after all the years in working the program, that sometimes when the sickness comes upon you, you are without any defense against it. You know, and I find that another clue to this is I find that when I am physically not feeling well, I am more susceptible to crazy thinking. And if I think crazy long enough, it makes me physically ill. You know, it's so funny how these things are all interwoven. But I didn't know that. Knew that. I didn't know that. I didn't know it either. Okay, I want to go back, but that's just to give you an idea why. That's, you can see why I'm here qualified to tell you how to do these steps. They're working so well in my life. Uh, <clears throat> it's a program of honesty. And I would be less than honest with you if I told you that I could do this program 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I don't know anyone who does. My sponsor has the best program I've ever seen on anybody, and every once in a while I see her go bonsai, and it's refreshing. <laughs> You know, we don't come in here to become saints, and we don't come here to get good. That was another thing I had to realize, you know. I don't come here to become a goody tissue. I, I can't walk on the water yet. Uh, I weigh too much. We come here to get well, and to try to get weller as time goes on. Now, to me, there are some necessities or musts. You know, I love it when people say there are no musts. Obviously, they haven't read the big book, because there's lots of musts in the big book. But uh, the first thing that I felt like, and that I feel today, that is of paramount importance is having a sponsor. It's very difficult to work the steps by yourself. Very few people can do it, and if you can do it, it's going to take you a long, hard time. Because, you see, those people are usually people who don't want anybody to help them do it because you know how and you know best. And, you know, I'm one of those kind of people, like I say, see, I know better than the Chinese. And so it would be a great advantage to have a sponsor. Now, you've got to have a willingness to do something different. That's another thing you're going to have to have. You're going to have to have some self-honesty. Now, that was real difficult for me. You know, I lied to me before I ever lied to you. And I could be real convincing when I told you, and the reason was because I believed my own bullshit. You know, if you lie to yourself long enough, you can be very convincing to others. 
So there, that's what I'm saying. There's some definite things that we're going to have to do. And I want to tell you about how I got a sponsor. You know, they say, uh, a lot of people will say, you have to find someone that you can relate to. Someone whose situation is like yours. I don't believe that. I believe people help people. And she had what I wanted. She had a glow about her. She had uh, a laugh. Her eyes, there was somebody at home. Um, and that was sort of scary, too. Did you ever get to feel when somebody could look at you in the eyes and they could look right into your soul and you didn't want them to? And God, that was scary. You know, she had those kind of eyes. But, you know, she didn't look into you from the... You could tell there was a softness about that, that she wasn't looking in there to criticize you. There's a difference there, too. Um, she seemed to roll with things pretty well. That didn't mean that trouble didn't happen in her life, but she seemed to roll with those things pretty well. Now, that's what I related to because, you see, in the reality, in the real, or over here, we didn't have anything to relate to. See, she's a black woman. Now, I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas, and I was raised in the 50s when we had the, the problems, the racial problems there. So naturally, there was a lot of racial prejudice that I was raised with and that I had. And so it was very foreign to me to look at a black woman for help or for anything. You didn't even talk to them. And yet, every time I would go to the meeting, this woman seemed to have so much love. And, what had, and she didn't treat me like I was treating her. Now, that said something else to me. That she went ahead and she was nice to me, even though I was being very cold and indifferent to her. And so I finally I asked her one day, I said, um, I think I want you to be my sponsor, but uh, there's something you ought to know first. And I said, um, I hate niggers. <laughs> well, I look at it this way. You need to be up front and tell them how it's going to be. And that's the test, you see, to see what her reaction was going to be to that statement. Because I figured, you know, this is where she's going to tell me to slip off, and, and, and that's going to be the end. And she looked at me, and she said, well, I don't like them either. <laughs> she said, uh, that's a mode of behavior, not a color. It's not limited to any color. But she said, you know, in here, we're hearts that hurt. And hearts that hurt have no color. Very wise woman. Very loving woman. And she taught me to overcome my prejudice of all people who were different than me. It was through her acceptance and her ability. And see, she'd been in the program about 20 years. And she'd been working it a long time. Okay, the next thing that uh, you have to have behind, my sponsor said, I want you to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, this is not always a popular opinion in an Al-Anon group. You know, it's sort of like, we're going to do the 23rd Psalm today, girls, but don't anybody read this. Shouldn't read that book. <laughs> Bad for those other people. And it was amazing to me because there's a chapter in there called To the Wives. Now, you know, evidently when the first hundred alcoholics, they were all male alcoholics. But at that time, they had not, and their chauvinism had not determined that women could be alcoholics. But there is a chapter there specifically to the wives. In fact, if you will read the book, you'll find out that's where the basis of the Al-Anon material started, was in the AA big book. And then there's a chapter there about the family afterwards. Uh, and that was what I read, those two chapters. And then one day, my sponsor, uh, I, she didn't tell me just to read those two chapters. She told me to get the book and read it. But, you know, it's just like the steps. 
I looked at him and I thought, I'll work the ones that apply to me. I knew I was powerless over alcohol, you know. Okay. And she said, you start at the beginning and you read the book. And she says, you will be able to identify. And I thought, now how can I identify with an alcoholic? And I'm here to tell you that today, I identify with an alcoholic and that we have the same disease exactly. It just affects us differently. The same disease exactly. And if it's the same disease, then the same medicine works. And so then the next book that she gave me was the 12 and 12 of Alcoholics Anonymous. In those days where there was no such thing as an Al-Anon 12 and 12. And you might be curious as to how that came about. Why we have a separate 12 and 12, I don't know because it doesn't make any sense when the preface of the AA 12 and 12 says it's for anyone who's trying to work a program of recovery through the 12 steps. But we had a movement somehow or another up in World Service Office where they decided they wanted everything to be done, you know, Al-Anon on everything and to remove the word alcoholics. And I don't understand what they do sometimes up there. And they don't understand me at all either. So that's okay. Uh, I used a lot of our Al-Anon family group uh, books. I, uh, I like our One Day at a Time in Al-Anon. And I don't know if any of you have read the One Day at, or a Day at a Time in Alateen. But that is a fantastic book. I like it better than our one day at a time in Al-Anon. It's a lot more cut through and gut level. Those kids, those kids can really do that. Uh, Al-Anon faces alcoholism, the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage, and more than anything, things that I have heard from people sharing in the meetings over the years and how they do it. That, that was my material that I went from when I started working on the steps. Um, the 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12, to me is one of the most revealing books about me that I have ever read, especially the chapters on the fourth step and the tenth step. Those have changed my life. Those made a difference in my life. 